You are listening to Mountain to Glen, the podcast. Welcome to this episode of Mountain Glen, the podcast. I'm your host, Robert Farrelly. And, well, it's December. And that means Christmas is fast approaching. I just want to start by saying to all our listeners, I wish each and every one of you a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And I hope you have lots of outdoor adventures in whatever way you want those adventures to be uh, over the Christmas break. Also, I would just like to thank all guests that have come on the podcast this year. And even late last year as well. Thank you very much for coming on and sharing your stories, your adventures and your passion. Of course, in the last episode, I didn't mention that I was coming close to the big 50 birthday celebrations. That has come and gone. And uh, yeah, I'm now 50. But um, it's it's been quite a celebration. Many little uh, birthday surprises and birthday cakes I've had over the last while. Um. But yeah, I just want to thank everyone that uh, arranged some sort of little birthday surprise and big birthday surprises and parties for me as well. Very, very much appreciated. And man, did I see some amount of cake. And also, if any of you are following Mountain Aglanda podcast on any of the social media platforms, such as Facebook, Twitter or Instagram, be aware that Paddy's Rambles from Athlone sent me a branded hat and hoodie uh, with my name personalised on it and the name of Mountain Aglanda podcast. Very much appreciated. Also, Sharon Fitzmaurice from the Sharon Fitzmaurice podcast, of which I was a guest on a while back, sent me a t-shirt with the Mountain to Glen logo on it as well. So all very Mountain to Glen team there. And again, thank you very much. Now, before I get started, uh, one or two quick things. If you want to kickstart 2023, the people at Ecoactive Social have a nice little uh, walking event for you. Join Ros and Linda for a relaxing hike in Glendalock which will average about 12 to 15 kilometers, followed by soup, sandwiches, tea and coffee. That'll be on January the 1st, 2023. If you're interested and you want to book that one, you can go to ecoactivesocial.com or if you want to email them for more information, go to chat at ecoactivesocial.com. Sounds like a nice way to kickstart a new year and definitely one good option for you. Also, on Wednesday the 28th of December, the Hillwalking Radio Group along with the Morning Ramblers, will be co-hosting two fundraising walks from the Community Centre in Galbally in support of Circle of Friends Cancer Support Service in Tipperary. first walk is through the village park and is a family-friendly walk, suitable for everyone, but no dogs allowed. second walk is a two-hour hike to Darby's Bed, taking into some fantastic starlight views. Registration is free from 6.30pm and a donation box will be available for Circle of Friends Support Services. For further information on that one, Contact 086-0888-145. Okay, now I'll be interviewing Maddie Turnbull, who some of you will remember from episode 5, The Arctic and Crossing the Finnmark Plateau. Just to remind you a little bit, Maddie is a professional art director in the film and TV industry, and she's originally from Newcastle-upon-Tyne in northeast England. She discovered the world of travel and adventure in her mid-30s and hasn't looked back since. And while I was talking to Maddie before that episode, I 
learned that she'd been over in Nepal and she'd done the Everest Base Camp Trek and her reasons for doing it as well. And I thought it would be something worth exploring. So I asked her, would she be interested in coming back? And she said she definitely would, which was great. And so in this episode, we will be talking about her trip to Everest Base Camp and her reasons for going there. I hope you enjoy. Hello, Maddie. You're very welcome to the podcast again. It's been a while since we've had you on before, so it's uh, it's great to welcome you back. Thank you for having me. I feel very honoured to be back for a second time. And I know the last time we were talking, you were talking about your journey when you'd uh, travelled across the Finnmark Plateau, uh, north to south. I was part of the first all-female British team to do that. But this time we're here to talk about a different trip you took. It was a trip you took to Everest Space Camp in Nepal. And like a lot of people, myself included, have traveled over there. And it's, you know, we go for the travel and the adventure and to experience life over there, see the mountains. And I'm sure all that was part Mm -hmm. of the reason you went over there. There was another reason you went over there as well. Would you like to share that with us? Yes, So it was something that my dad had always been absolutely obsessed with. He had an absolute fixation and an obsession and an absolute passion for the Himalayas, particularly, and especially Everest. So I was kind of doing it really in honour of him. So to go back to tell how how it all kind of came about, um, it was unplanned in the first instance, actually, because I was working in Manchester on a big job, big drama job. And I'd been working right from sort of January in 2016. That went on to about October. So it was a very long time and that was without any break. So I was feeling pretty tired by the time I was getting to October. And so I was starting to plan going away. So I started thinking about, oh, maybe a trip to Bali, you know, a nice yoga retreat, stay in an ashram, something like that. So I was very much planning that. And then literally within a couple of weeks, the designer who I'd been doing this job with, he was a really lovely guy said oh Maddie I've got this job in London you know would you think about doing it um it's not a big job but it's a really lovely drama job um it would finish in January and then you'd be you'd be free to go and part of me was a bit like oh you know I was planning on being off after all of those months but you know he was such a nice guy I'd had such a good time working with him and I kind of thought oh why not another few months and then that'll be that so that's what I did. So I went to London with him and continued on into the job. So then when it finally did come around to January, it meant I had actually worked 52 weeks solidly without any kind of break. So I think at that point, I was definitely feeling right when I finish in January, I'm definitely going away. But this time, it almost feels as if I should be doing something slightly more epic. I feel as if I've had such a long epic time on a job, I should maybe be doing something similar in terms of my time off. And so the draw to going to Bali suddenly it wasn't really there any longer but I just had this really strong sense I don't know where it came from I see it as some kind of grace now really but that something was saying to me actually this could be a really good opportunity to do Everest Base Camp I got that sort of seed sown into my head and I couldn't seem to let it go and I thought yeah you know I'm definitely going to do it I'm going to go for it and do that so I signed up for it a company called World Expeditions who are sort of they've been around for a very long time um, they do a lot of sort of trekking holidays all over the world and signed up with them to do it. So that was back in, I think that was around the October time I had actually booked it. So all of that sort of thought process had happened fairly quickly after accepting the job in, in London. So once I knew that, I had about four months and thought, right, I think I better start thinking about actually getting prepared for this. You know, it's a fairly big trip. It's fairly epic. But because I was working in London, I was working on really crazy hours the only things that I didn't have a gym, you know, I was 
working too long really to kind of get um, any any routine particularly so I thought well I'm just gonna have to rely on the things that I kind of knew I could do really and just hope that that would be enough to kind of get me through and at the time that was when I was very much into running and I was part of a local running club and I was practicing yoga so they were the two things I sort of drew on and that's what I ended up sort of doing really um it was all quite entertaining because when I went to London I was staying in a convent on the outskirts of West London and (laughs) yeah (laughs) that could be a podcast in itself actually I think what went on there but (laughs) (laughs) but it meant that I was up really early in the morning so at about 4 30 getting up at the convent with my running gear on taking my things to work and then um getting to the office getting outside freezing cold you know sort of six in the morning earlier actually and then running a 10k you know around the streets of west london in the bitter cold, you know, and looking at sort of lorry drivers and people at bus stops and so thinking I must have been absolutely bonkers, you know, which I kind of was. And even part of me, I think I was feeling, what on earth am I doing? You know, this is the last thing I want to be doing. But actually, in a funny kind of way, you know, it did sort of feel as if, as they say, you know, it's in those hard yards where you, you sort of find yourself a little bit and realise uh, that's what kind of gets you through. So obviously, so the running was kind of something I was doing in the mornings. And then when I was getting home late at night, I was going back to my little room in the convent and I was practicing my yoga. So they were just kind of the two things that I could kind of sustain across the few months in the run up to it, really. So then uh, it was February when I was going to be going and I decided that I would make that journey from Newcastle because obviously at this point I told my dad I was going to do it and couldn't quite believe it, you know, sort of was astonished that I was even thinking about it, you know, because he'd obviously talked about it and dreamt about it, you know, all his life really. Um, so he was so excited and, you know, really keen. Yeah. So I said it, it felt right to kind of start the journey really from going home, going back to Newcastle and sort of staying with my mum and dad for a few nights before I was setting off. So that was a really lovely thing to do actually. And then my dad took me to the station the morning I was leaving and uh, I was then traveling down to London and I was getting a flight across to Delhi and uh, from Delhi I was then going on to Nepal so it was all going quite smoothly Uh, got down to London fine got the flight to India got to Delhi and that's when it all (laughs) in true Indian fashion all all kind of went a bit pear-shaped my bags went missing at Delhi I ended up missing my connecting flight to Nepal so that sort of delayed things quite a bit I found myself you know wondering how on earth I was going to get there, what had happened to my bags, you know, and all of this was going on well beyond 12 hours, you know, sort of trying to get to the bottom of what had happened. In the end, they finally got my bags. They were being brought across on the next flight from the UK and there was going to be another connecting flight to Nepal so I could catch that one. So we were then back on track, but it was many, many hours later. So got that connecting flight, got to Nepal, but I mean, I think it must have been around midnight, one in the morning, something like that when I got there. Yeah. The plan had been to get there the day before. So I kind of felt like I've got plenty of time. I can just get acclimatized, you know, we were arriving in Kathmandu and, you know, hopefully it was all just going to kind of fairly sort of steady away. But what I didn't know when I got there to Kathmandu and got to the hotel, finally got ushered into reception and there was a guy waiting for me and it seemed like there was just one ticket left on this table and that was me and so everybody else had arrived for the trip got my ticket and told me there's a room and you've got to get up to that room and all of that so you're sharing it with this other lady who's also on the trek so got into the room she was fast asleep but she put the light on and you know we introduced ourselves and things and uh, she said oh the thing is Maddie she said 
what's actually happened is she said there appears to have been more of us than originally was planned. So they've made the decision to divide the group into two. So one of the group is going to stay behind and do sort of like a few days in Kathmandu before heading off to the, you know, the trek, you know, into Everest. But the the remaining lot are going to leave tomorrow morning. And she said, and you're part of that team. So I'd literally just arrived. So this is well after one in the morning, one nearly 2 a.m. And she said, we're leaving at about three o'clock this morning. We've got to be up and we've got to have our backpack. And she said, that's your bag there. And you've got to only take nine kilos and everything else has to be left here, which you'll get when we return and all of that kind of thing. So suddenly oh I was in flight panic thinking, I'm going to be on the flight to Luckler in less than three hours. I haven't even packed the bag or anything. You know, it was all a bit insane. Luckily, I'd had the foresight to, um, because actually I was going on to India after this. So I sort of had pods of clothes, if you like, in dry bags, you know, so I knew some things were going to be for when I was in India. And, you know, I'd kind of labelled up things. So it was quite good. So it literally meant I opened up my big rucksack and I could just pull out the pods of the things that I knew I needed to take with me. So thank God I'd done that because that at least meant, you know, I sort of knew what I needed and I could do it without too much stress because it was (laughs) fairly insane at that point so I literally got that all sorted finally got organized sent a couple of quick messages just to say I'd arrived and then put my head down and then I think the alarm went within about an hour you know (laughs) (laughs) and so I was up again you know so the whole thing was just a bit of a crazy experience really at that point so we got (laughs) taken off on a (laughs) on a little sort of a little shuttle car thing off to the airport to go to Lukla. And that was quite extraordinary because I think part of me in, in a way was quite relieved that I hadn't had a lot of sleep because I didn't really have a lot of time to really worry about it. Because I don't know if everybody knows, but the flight from Kathmandu to Lukla has a bit of a you know historical record of being one of the worst flights in the history of you know (laughs) flying you know that it has a really really bad safety record um so you know naturally I had that at the back of my mind but I think because I'd had such a lack of sleep I felt quite calm (laughs) and sort of well you know it's just another thing just get on the plane you know it'll be fine but of course you get to the airport they're quite serious about weighing your luggage you know it's quite critical and you don't realize how critical that is until you see the size of the plane and then you realize (laughs) yeah like I think every ounce counts sort of thing you know it was tiny so it's like a 10-seater plane I actually remember when I was on that plane myself, the was one air hostess and her job was to, one, give you cotton buds for your ears because of the noise of the engine, yeah. and the other was to give you a bio-suite. Is that process yeah. still the same? <laughs> I think it probably was. I think I think, I think, I think <laughs> cotton buds, but I do remember the bio-suite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that's fairly extraordinary. I mean, I've never really been in a small aircraft before. So that was like my first experience. And what an experience to have, you know. So um, you're literally just like one seat apart, aren't you? And, that, and that's it. And then you're, you're at the walls of the aircraft. So, uh, yeah, it's a really small plane. But what an amazing flight. I mean, I think, you know, whatever anyone says, yeah. it's absolutely worth taking the chance to do it because it's so incredibly stunning I mean we were very fortunate the weather was good because it is a flight as well that will just get cancelled at the drop of a hat you could be waiting hours days sometimes because you know it's such a small aircraft and where it's flying to you know the weather conditions are quite critical so we were quite fortunate that it did take off on time that morning so that was good 
And yes, just as it, you know, you're leaving Kathmandu and you're coming up and over and it's your first time when you see the Himalayas, all of those peaks in front of you. And it's, ah, oh, it's just absolutely awesome. You kind of can't quite believe it really. Mm. And then suddenly it's kind of, my friend described it as a bit like the entrance into where the baddie lives in, um, and James Bond, you know, it's like, <laughs> it's, like, it's like the opening of the mountain and uh, <laughs> and there's this like tiny little runway, isn't there? You know, and it just appears yeah. from nowhere. You kind of, you feel like you are just kind of up in the clouds and very much on the top of the world, which you are. And then, yes, it sort of opens up and there's the tiniest runway. And I think that is the thing, isn't it? That it is genuinely the smallest runway in the world. Yeah, no, I, um, I appreciate what you're saying about the, the James Bond feel to it. Yeah. <laughs> right, you know, it's right at the edge of a cliff, basically. It and you're is, coming yeah, into it. it is. It's exactly that. Yeah. Yeah. So that that landed. We made it all safely. And, and then the, the trek began, you know. So, yeah. And you're saying your dad was very excited about you going out. He's been big into Everest. Yeah, it's a funny thing. My dad wasn't a mountaineer, but I did ask him. I remember asking him about where did you get this absolute passion for the Himalayas and particularly for Everest? And I always remember he described it as he was at school. So he must have only been about 12 because it was obviously in 1953, I think, when um, Edmund Hillary summited it. You know, he conquered it for the first time. And he said a TV was actually brought into the school because it was such big news, you know, that that somebody had managed to get to the, the, you know, the highest mountain in the world, you know, that they'd reached the top. And he said he watched this documentary at school and he was just absolutely transfixed at that point, you know, and it just became something that he was fascinated by. And I think it was always that idea of sort of man against mountain or not necessarily against, but more just that. As a human, we could conquer something in the scale of mountains, you know. And he was just a great appreciator of nature and uh, landscape. And I think he just, there was something about the Himalayas, I think that just really captured him. And I think he just always, probably as well, because it was so far removed from his background, you know, he was a working class man, family man, you know, had never really thought for the opportunity to travel or do anything like that, really. Interestingly, he wasn't a mountaineer, but absolutely loved knowing about mountaineers. And he was so knowledgeable. You know, he'd spent his sort of entire life really just as a hobby, sort of just, um, you know, immersing himself really in knowledge about all of the mountains and in the mountainous regions of the world. And he was just absolutely captivated and fascinated by it. And he obviously instilled that in me, you know, because I remember just from being a very small child, you know, that he would tell me endless stories about it. And uh, and he always told it with such drama, you know, so the real sense of, you know, when Hillary got to the top and and he was always fairly obsessed about Mallory. You know, I think he always had a had that longing that it was Mallory who had actually got there, you know, in the first instance back in, what was it, 1924, I think it was. So he just had a, you know, a vast knowledge and endless books on it, you know, DVDs and things like that. You know, he just he just loved it. He was just absolutely fascinated by that region. I think he would always love to have gone. So I think that was why I kind of felt so strongly, you know, that I wanted to do that for him and with him. You know. Yes, you were kind of doing the journey for him as well Mm -hmm. as for yourself. Yeah, very much so. And the really great thing I did before I left 
and I'm always so thankful for this, was that my dad wasn't massively into technology, but, he, you know, he was getting into a few little bits and pieces and he got a mobile phone and all of that kind of thing. But he didn't actually know how to text. He didn't know how to do any kind of text messaging. So before I left, in those few days beforehand, I taught him how to use WhatsApp. So I thought, when I can get the opportunity, Dad, you know, when I'm on this journey, if I come into Signal, we can communicate. This is our way how we can stay in touch and how I can take you on this journey with me, which was brilliant because it did actually mean, you know, he kind of totally got it and knew how to send things and all of that kind of stuff. So it really, that was really special. And I'm always so grateful that I did that, you know, and we had that chance to kind of communicate in that way because it did mean every step of the way, you know, I could just kind of keep him informed and send him photos. And, you know, I was sort of his eyes and ears really, you know, and kind of witnessing it. And he was very much there, part of it too. Yeah, he was pretty much on the journey with you all the way. Very much so, yeah. Mm. And when you were going out there, what gear did you, you decide to bring? Um, there wasn't anything sort of massively specific. I think um, very much your regular sort of trekking gear. I had a really good backpack. I had an Osprey bag, which that was. I've still got it now, actually. Brilliant, brilliant rucksack. And uh, yeah, that's great. You yeah, like your day sack, really, you know, that you're carrying all of the time and you know, your sort of bladder with water is very important. And that's something obviously you have to monitor when you're out there because, um, you know, the guys are boiling up the water for you because it's not necessarily safe there. So, you know, you're given your sort of, not necessarily a ration, but it just means, you know, it's going to be a few hours before you're going to get another opportunity to get fresh water. So it was always good, you know, to have that kind of bladder pack in my rucksack when I was kind of traveling. And, you know, just really good walking boots. I think I had braces at the time and they didn't let me down. They were brilliant. So they were great. But if there was anything that I took that was invaluable, it was actually a buff because out there it's so dusty and sandy, you know, and the winds, just that thin roll of cotton actually ends up becoming sort of your best friend, really. It becomes, you know, vital as part of your kit, you know, that you're wearing it all of the time and just protecting yourself from kind of all of that kind of dust and stuff in the atmosphere. Yeah, I agree with you on the buff as well. Like mm. a lot of sandier areas have been around the world. It's yeah. it's, had, it's had a multitude of uses, like yeah. you know, it's definitely it really one of them. Is. You can't underestimate it though. Yeah, that was really important. I mean probably my sleeping bag as well, that was fairly important because the temperatures we were going to were, you know, pretty low. So I think I, I had like a RAB, maybe a RAB 900, something like that. Mm-hmm. And that was great. You know, I'm so, you know, pleased that I had something oh, yeah. decent, decent for that, really. Um, did you get any gear out in Kathmandu while you were there? Because I know they have a lot of knockoff of a lot of things. Yeah. Actually, you can get them fairly cheap. Some of them are actually fairly good, like, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, because I didn't have the opportunity to get into Kathmandu before we set off, I was reliant on the things that I had, really. And it wasn't until we got much further into the trek when we get to sort of Namchi area, you know, where I could buy a few more bits and pieces and a few headbands and things like that. So, no, I was travelling pretty much with literally the things that I'd taken out with me. So yeah you know and because you're you're traveling with only that nine kilos you have to be very specific about what you take you know and um of course now knowing what i know about merino and the value of that i would definitely say that would be a brilliant thing to take then i didn't you know so i was just in sort of synthetic sort of base layers they were fine but i think i'd probably make different choices now if i was going out again you know and you're right you you do have to be very merciless in what you're going to bring as well yeah, it's very hard, you know, when you're used to having quite a few choices. Yeah. Then, uh, <laughs> you're limiting yourself very much. So, yeah. 
And tell me, how did you how did you get on with your fellow trekkers? And oh, you met your first friend there when you got about an hour's sleep. Yeah. Was that? Yeah. And you had time to adjust and, and get to know each other. How did you just get on? Yeah, it was great. It was a really interesting group. I think there was about eight of us. I think there were three women from the UK, myself included. There was another girl from Australia. There was an uncle and, um, and like a nephew, so to speak, from Australia and a guy from the States. And it was interesting. Everyone was kind of out there for their own reasons, doing things differently. You know, the lady who I'd originally met, you know, that first night in Kathmandu, uh, she recently lost her husband and mm. they'd been planning this trip. So she was kind of doing it almost kind of in his memory and his honour as well. So that was kind of her reasoning. Um, you know, one of the girls, um, she was doing a sort of charity thing. And then I think the nephew and uncle, I think it had been the uncle's life. Like he was in his 60s and it had been his passion and it was the nephew who wanted to go with him and um, and the guy from the States. I think he was celebrating his 50th birthday because I think that happened when we were out there. So, But lovely, you know, and yeah, there was a lovely quietness amongst our group, actually. There was no kind of really loud, gregarious sort of personalities, you know, where sometimes you find that it becomes a bit of a struggle, you know, where yeah. you're having to sort of, find your sort of level really in amongst that group but we all just seemed fairly level across the board and that was lovely you know it just meant that we had a really nice kind of synergy with each other which I was very grateful for. <laughs> yeah no it's, it is important to be able to get on especially if you're going to be with each other for an yeah. extended period of time. Absolutely and of course because the nature of that trek is it gets harder as you go on because naturally you know you're going into higher altitudes yeah it becomes a lot more testing, you know, both physically and mentally. Um, you know, you're drawing really on the strength of your group as well, you know, to get you through that. So that that was another really important aspect. But everyone was lovely. Yeah, really, really good group of travellers. What did you think of your Sherpas? Uh, with them? Yeah, they were fabulous. Yeah. yeah, we had a really great um, Sherpa leader called Tashi. And he was the one who was kind of leading our particular group. Sadly, I don't remember the names of a lot of the other guys who were there, but what a wonderful group of men these were, really. You know, the one guy who was kind of with us all of the time, um, he lived in a village miles away, you know, and then he comes just to do this sort of trek, you know, over the sort of couple of weeks or what have you. And then he goes home again, you know, for a few days before coming back and doing it again. You know, so it's a big thing, you know, and really lovely porters and other shippers, you know, who are kind of going on ahead of you to make sure that the sort of camp's set up, everything's ready, food's kind of being prepared, all of that kind of thing. But always with a smiling face, you know, always happy, always very joyful and content and keeping you motivated and a lovely quietness a quietness and a respect amongst them which I, I really loved you know there's something very magnetizing about the Nepalese people in that way you know they just have a lovely quietness about them uh yeah really lovely yeah I've found out myself they're like a yeah they're very quiet and unassuming very mm-hmm. friendly as well like you know yeah yeah very interesting looking people as well you know they sort of wear that kind of the hardship on their faces in many ways because it's very humbling when you're doing this trek and you see a lot of these sort of sherpas who are traveling up the mountain you know carrying goods you know and their backs are bent over you know and their bodies are kind of deformed in many ways the older guys you know who've been doing it for a very long time and it's very humbling to witness you know because they're carrying the most phenomenal things on their backs because Everything that gets up that mountain has to be carried by a person. You yeah. know, it's the only way it gets there. Um, obviously, maybe different now, things that maybe airdropped in or what have you. But then certainly, you know, it was very much done by hand. So the nature of their 
work is that they're paid by the kilo. So the more they can carry, the more money they can earn. So you see these phenomenal amounts of cargo being carried on their backs that you just can't quite believe, you know, really as, as wide as they are tall, you know, huge, huge things, you know, huge big panes of glass and fridges and all sorts of stuff, yeah. you know, literally on the backs of men. Quite an amazing thing to see. And over time, it will take its toll on them as oh, well. Like it's, yeah. yeah. I remember when I was out there, there was one time I was involved with a group. Uh, one of the things we were doing at the hotel was trying to get people to knock down the load as much as they could. I don't think we were very popular that morning. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, it was only when they were out on the on the trail and the stuff where the work cases were orders were definitely been abused there was just too much weight that they actually realized how important it was to have that weight down and they were a bit more grateful to us at that stage but it's yeah it's a tough life for them Mm, very very but they just get on with it you know I think that's the thing as well you know there there's a lot of lessons to be learned from that it's quite an interesting thing to witness you know when it's people who are just getting on with it their life you know and um, just always still very gracious for the opportunities that they have but yes, absolutely lovely. Yeah. In fact, Tashi, who was our, our leader, uh, I was quite amazed because when I'd been traveling out there, I'd been reading a book on the way. I always like to sort of try and read something when I go off traveling, something to do with sort of the people or the geography of, you know, that region I'm going into, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, you know, just something. And I was reading an autobiography of Bridget Muir, who was actually the first Australian woman who summited Everest in the 90s, I think it was 96 or something. So I'd read that book on the flight going out and you know, was fascinated by her. So it turned out that Tashi had actually been the Sherpa who had been on her Everest ascent climb. That felt quite extraordinary, you know, that I'd been telling him about how I'd been reading the book and stuff, you know, and he said that he, he knew her really well. And uh, it just was a, such an amazing, well, you could say it's a coincidence, but sometimes I think these things are meant to be, you know, so that felt like a lovely connection you know, that we already had, you know, when I was telling him about how I'd just been reading the book. And just on that, I mean, how was your overall experiences on the Everest Base Camp Trek? I mean, when you look back on it. Oh, I mean, it's sort of mixed emotions, really. But it's interesting because obviously it's been, what, five and a half years since I did it. And you forget some of the things, you know, looking back over some photographs the other night, you know, in preparation, talking to you and it's actually just such fond memories I have of it now, you know, and almost like a longing to go back, you know, when I look at it and I look at the serenity of it and the absolute, you know, jaw dropping beauty of the region, you know, it makes me actually really want, want to go back there really and sort of do more. I felt that at the time, you know, that I felt like there was so much more that you could see and do out there, but I I really enjoyed the experience. Yeah. I mean, it was quite, like I say, incredibly challenging, you know, but hugely rewarding at the same time yeah like even talking to you has brought back a, a few memories for me like mm. i remember when you mentioned namshi bazaar or someone was over there in nepal and i was on the everest base camp trek but uh i was there in namshi bazaar thousands of miles from home and in this shop and in a completely different world just looking through it and on one of the shelves in the shop there's a soup here in iron con air and soup <laughs> and there was a couple of sachets of air and soup. <laughs> there was a couple of sashes of hair and soup on the shelf and I was thinking to myself, what? <laughs> for, for a moment I was like, geez, I felt like I was almost back home, like, you know. <laughs> but uh, one of the other things I've always remembered as well was that getting up in the morning. 
Mm. And you go outside and like, you know, the mountains were covered in mist and then at one yeah. area you would clear and you'd be looking and your breath would be completely taken away by that view. Oh, and you think, okay, that's it. I, I've been amazed. And you turn around yeah. and the cloud is cleared on the other side. Yes. And here's another mountain and your yeah. breath is completely taken away that's once again. When I think about it and actually looking back through the photos, what really reminds me about how your neck as well is kind of really... Like, <laughs> You're kind of already really high up, but you are continuing to look even higher still. You know, like the peaks of these mountains are so vast. They yes. are so incredibly, you know, you the sense of scale, you just can't appreciate until you're actually there and you're in amongst it. And it is, it's really just that your jaw is on the floor all of the time, isn't it? You know, it's just yeah. absolutely astonishing views. You know, and, and I think what's um, what I think of often as well, actually, is how the contrast, even in terms of the light out there, because these mountains are so vast, so huge. When the sun does come up, you know, a lot of these places are in shadow for such a long time. You know, there's a lot of areas. So you, you get a real sense of sort of light and dark in these places, you know, and it takes a long time for the sun to sort of come up and come over and, and descend down into sort of the valleys and you know, so it's a real, it's moving and changing all of the time. And I think as well, the other thing is, is you're getting higher, you know, you're, you're moving above the tree line, you're sort of constantly climbing. It's that silence that starts to really descend as well. You know, you realise that you are kind of above where anything else exists. You know, birds yeah. no longer fly at that height. You are above, you You are literally, you know, the land of the gods. You know, you, you've, you've really got to such a height on this planet it's quite phenomenal yeah yeah and constantly breathtaking yeah uh, just having this conversation is is uh, this stirring quite a few memories with me yeah. as well yeah. um but uh for you like i mean that was as you say it's an, it's an amazing trip what are the best memories that come back to you from that trip oh there's so many, you know, because it's, I think because you're doing it, I mean, it, I was out there for well over two weeks, you know, so I think, I think the whole thing takes you around maybe 14, 15 days, something like that, because yeah. you're having to take your time, you know, kind of as the air becomes thinner as, you know, the higher you're going. I think definitely the people, you know, and witnessing all of the sort of the villages, the villagers, you know, the people of that area, how they live, you're, looking at a completely different aspect of life on this planet in that way you know that was fairly astonishing and all of the things that are built up there as well you know because it's all handmade you know so all of the huts and the houses the monasteries you know all of these things it's all been done by hand this is all the sheer will of humans you know that have done that up there that's fairly breathtaking you know obviously all of the prayer flags and the you know the many stones with the sort of mantras that have been carved in over centuries yeah. just all sorts of incredible things like that really and I think for me one of there's a real memory that I have that I've always comes back to me which was really quite special was one night when we got quite high up I think at this point you're sort of up to maybe is it like uh, Dingboche or um, Panboche quite high up you're not yeah. far off getting to sort of Everest base camp at that point and we were staying on a campsite and the land belonged to this young guy and his family who had originally been from eastern Tibet and you know he made us very welcome we had a lovely campfire food all of that kind of thing and in the evening, you know, we were sort of telling stories, this, that and the other. And then he started singing. And this sound that he made was just so beautiful. And it turned out that these were the very traditional songs of the sort of Eastern Tibetan shepherds. You know, it was almost like a lament to their homeland. 
Um, And that was really quite moving, you know, and quite unexpected, but very, very special. And so that memory often comes back and I sort of really relish that. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And just on your best memories, I mean, what low points did you have when you were on the trek? For me, it probably would have been the altitude you know and adjusting to that altitude I mean everyone kind of says oh altitude sickness and this and that and you you know nobody really knows how it's going to affect you and it affects everybody differently and often it doesn't have anything to do with your your fitness or anything like that it's a bit of a look of the draw kind of thing I was very fortunate. I mean, a lot of the others, sadly, you know, were sort of feeling the need to have to take, I think, is it Diamox and, you know, all sorts of pills and they were rattling around like rattlesnakes, you know, by the end. (laughs) (laughs) You know, they were so, they almost became slightly paranoid. You know, every tiny little feeling they were having was, you know, something to do with altitude sickness. I was very, very lucky and I didn't really suffer too much with any of those kind of side effects. However, in the mornings, those first couple of hours, a bit like when you're seeing the beautiful light and all of that kind of thing. But also for me, the first couple of hours of the mornings, I really struggled breathing, you know, so that adjustment to kind of just setting off for the day and taking those first few steps. Oh, it was as if, you know, someone had sort of, you know, stopped your lungs, you know, your lungs were sort of expanding to such an extent. and I found that quite difficult. That was quite challenging. And it was just about keeping calm. And that was where actually, you know, my thing about having been doing running and yoga ended up the best things I could have done, you know, because in many ways, you know, the running did give me that cardio fitness and all of that. And I think mindfulness practices that I have in yoga and breathing, breath work really did help on that latter part of the journey when it got really quite challenging and difficult. And the difficulty comes more in the lack of oxygen. And so for me, it was sort of almost that anticipation of the mornings and knowing that it was getting harder for me in the mornings and that I just had to kind of stay calm and get through the first couple of hours. And then I seemed to find this rhythm and I kind of could get into it and, you know, adjust my breathing accordingly. And I was fine. But I think that for me was a little bit of a, it wasn't so much a low point, it was just a different thing, but it was something that I felt quite, you know, challenged by. Yeah, yeah. I know myself when I was out there, like uh, in the evenings when we were finished our walk, we used to go that little bit higher and to go back down and just uh, adjust a little bit again. We did that a couple of times. Yeah, it does help a bit. But just when you were talking about, like, I mean, Mm. I was grand in the mornings. I could have a great day and I could be doing a simple little thing, like just reaching across the table, say, one of the tea houses for soup. And suddenly you know there bang it it would get me and I remember a bit of a bad case of it up around Everest base camp but the next day I was able to work through Mm. it again like you know yeah a lot of people seem to get it I think around uh, base camp because funnily enough for me that was probably the only time I did kind of get any symptoms and I was very lucky the only thing I sort of struggled with was um, a bit of sort of sinusitis you know I kind of uh, I was struggling to sort of breathe through my nose but a little bit of Vicks and a bit of hot water seemed to sort that out but just the day before we had got there, I think it's Gorik Shep, I think you kind of get to just before you head for Everest. That's right. And some guy had had air lifted off, you know, he'd had sort of fluid on the brain, all to do with, you know, just a lack of oxygen. So I think you can't underestimate, you know, that trip to Everest is quite a common one. You know, it's still a challenge for particularly Western people that our bodies aren't physically capable of coping at that height, you know, with that lack of oxygen. And that you have to be very prepared and take it seriously and uh, really listen to your body and listen to yourself, you know, how you're feeling um, in that terrain. Give your body time to adjust. 
sure. I know one of the other things I say you were doing as well, you have to drink plenty of water every day just to keep yourself going. But, um, yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> one of the guys on my track, if he's listening to this, he's probably going to kill me. But uh, he, he used to probably drink a little bit more water than the rest of us. And he like he was going more often than we were. We were still all going, but he was beating us a bit. And his name was Eddie. So every time anyone was going to the yeah. toilet, they would say, we're going for an Eddie. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm not sure you appreciate the fame. <laughs> <laughs> the humour comes from those moments, don't they? They become very particular to just your little group, you know, and uh, yeah. it's what gets you through, isn't it? It is, it is, <laughs> it exactly it is. Um when you actually got to Everest Space Camp, how did it feel for you to finally get there to reach that point? Yeah, it's quite extraordinary. At that point, you know, you'd already been sort of travelling for maybe it's over a week, I think, isn't it? It's, it sort of takes you maybe, is it about five or six days, something like that, before you get there? Yes, it's about... A bit more, maybe, it? yeah. Mm, I think, so by the time you get there, you've come through such a lot already. You know, you, you feel like you've already been on quite an epic journey. And the terrain really changes as well, you know. So you, as you're moving higher and higher through the Himalayas, you know, like I already said, you get above the tree line, you know, and you're coming more into the sort of glacial moraine and mm-hmm. it's very barren, very dusty, very, very cold, huge, big boulders. You know, you, you really start to get the sense that you are almost like you are no longer on the planet. You know, you've kind of entered in the kind of sphere, really. You know, these boulders are huge and it's very imposing. And yeah, there's almost like a sense of adrenaline, you know, when you know that you're sort of nearing it and getting quite close. And the really good thing for us, because of the time of year we were going, we were just ahead the spring sort of summits, you know, who were going to make an attempt. So we could get right into the heart of base camp. Otherwise, I think when there's a lot of things going on there, when a lot of teams are setting up, they don't really want you anywhere near, you know, because they're all in the zone, they're all preparing, you know, for this big ascent. So we were very fortunate that it was completely empty and we could get right in there. And you're almost in this kind of bowl, aren't you? Sort of like a chimney yeah. at the bottom. And the other curious thing is obviously you can no longer see the actual peak of Everest. You know, you are very much at the base of it. But it's so dramatic as well, you know, because on our way there, you know, avalanches were coming down and these things are thunderous. You know, they're so loud. They really make you feel your place, you know, and you yeah. really get that sense that you're very much in a very unpredictable landscape. But a very emotional feeling, you know, that I'd made that journey. I'd done it all in honour of my dad and that I'd finally got there and got to see it, you know, and that I could sort of take the photo and have my picture, you know, with my dad, uh, with me. You know, I had a photo of of him and, yeah, a very, very emotional feeling. And um, I think for me as well, obviously, when I was going out there, on those evenings, you know, before when I said to you, I was sort of staying in Newcastle before I went. And I did actually say to my dad, I said, it's such a significant thing getting to base camp, dad. Is there anything you want me to take? Do you want me to leave anything at base camp for you? And he thought about it, came back to me. And he had, my dad was a great man of faith, you know, he was a Christian. And he had a beautiful wooden set of rosary beads that he'd had and they were blessed from Bethlehem and he said I want you to take these and I want you to leave them there for me so that's what I did so I carried them the whole way knowing where they were destined for and when I got there that was quite an emotional feeling you know knowing that I sort of took out his rosary 
and sort of you know there's a beautiful you know when you get to base camp it's very much a gorgeous sort of um tribute people have left all sorts of things there, and there's certainly all of the prayer flags you know it's a very sacred space and you know to attach his rosary beads there and know that I'd kind of you know delivered him and that's kind of one of the interesting things now when I look back on it because obviously looking back now obviously what what happened once I'd kind of come away from Everest and kind of continued that journey I continued on into India and I stayed out for another month or so sort of in the sort of the Himalayan foothills in India so I didn't immediately return um but when I did come back I'd had all sorts of trouble with um, flights and connections and all sorts of things, but finally made it back. And my dad was adamant that he was going to pick me up from, uh, you know, the airport or the train station. It ended up being Newcastle train station. But I said, Dad, this is so late. It's going to be about one in the morning when it gets in. It's, the, it's literally the last train leaving King's Cross. And he said, it doesn't matter. I'll meet you there. I'll meet you there. So I obviously had all of this bother kind of getting sort of with different commuting things to get there, but finally got on this train got into Newcastle. I remember thinking, oh, feeling a bit kind of uh, sort of worn out by coming back into civilization and the journey and all that kind of thing. But my dad just stood there, this wonderful tall man, you know, and waiting with this beaming smile on his face. And um, I just remember kind of going over to him, you know, still carrying my backpack and everything. And it's just his first words, you know, you did it. You did it for me. You know, you did it. You know, and it was just, it was such a special thing to share, you know. And the other thing that he'd asked for, which was really funny, um, the only thing he'd ever wanted, he said, he would have loved to have received something with a Nepalese um, stamp on it. And I remember thinking like, oh, what a mad thing. But I'm sure that I must be able to do something. And we talk about Namchi Bazaar because Namchi Bazaar is actually known as, it's like the highest and final post office in the world. Yeah. But such a lot of things go missing from there. They say, oh, your chances of anything getting through, you know, (laughs) are fairly slim. But I thought, well, you know what, I'm going to take a bit of a gamble. So I'd got a lovely postcard and it was, you know, with um, sort of from the north face of the top of Everest. And it was a card that you could only buy out there, really, and sort of written on it and sent it to my dad, got the stamps and put on it and sent it on its way. And, you know, didn't know whether he was going to get it or not and just kind of hoped for the best. And it was actually when I was in India, so I'd made it from you know, doing the trek, got into India. And it was a couple of weeks later when I got a WhatsApp from my dad, you know, saying, mad, I can't believe it. You know, I've just got in and I've received your postcard. It's absolutely fantastic. You know, and I was just absolutely over the moon, you know, that just this simple thing. And that's all he'd ever wanted, you know, was just to receive something with sort of um, stamps from Nepal. Yeah. Uh, you know, and that I could fulfill that for him, you know, it was, was fabulous. Um, But yes, I think, what obviously I wasn't prepared for when I came back was that in such a short space of time, literally three months later, you know, my dad passed away. That's the thing that I kind of still can't quite believe that uh, it kind of came out of nowhere, really. My dad had always had heart trouble, but uh, it was actually lung cancer that they discovered. And he'd gone into hospital feeling very unwell on the Monday and he died the following Saturday. So it was very, very quick, very brief and very unexpected. And now when I sort of look back and I think particularly back to that moment, you know, of him asking me to take um, that rosary, you know, and and leave it at base camp. Can't help but feel, you know, in a funny kind of way. It was as if I was 
I was taking him to, they call it heaven on earth, actually, you know, that whole region of mm -hmm. the Himalayas, because they are literally the highest peaks in the world. You're so close. And it felt like I've taken him to the top of the world in readiness that the mountains are going to come for him, you know, and yeah. take him home. And, you know, I kind of still can't quite believe that, you know, in many ways I felt like I was doing that for him and he probably didn't even know it himself, but that, you know, he was kind of, in preparation to go back, you know, and uh, sort of feels very fitting, really, that that was where that was where I left them for him, you know. Yeah, um, as you said, he he had been there with you in many ways on the whole mm -hmm. way into it as well, and yeah. was obviously very proud of you when you when you came home, having achieved it too. Yeah, yeah, and I remember as well. I can read it to you if you're interested, but. Um, at the time, I'm no longer on social media, but at the time I was on Facebook and I felt it was such a momentous thing, you know, that um, I wanted to sort of say something on there and say that I'd made it and that I was doing this in honour of my dad and everything, you know. So I, I wrote a little sort of thing on there. And my sister told me that, you know, when I posted it, she'd read it out word for word, you know, to my mum and dad who was sat there and she said, you know, my dad was just absolutely full up, you know, and he was a strong man, quite a proud man. But she said, you know, the tears were there and he was just so incredibly proud, you know, that I think he felt like a daughter of mine. He couldn't believe, you know, that he said, you know, obviously he had boys as well. And it was it was me, you know, who, who took on that mantle of wanting to do it, you know, and he could just never quite believe that that I did that, you know. Yeah. To have been able to share it all with him, you know, I took a video when I was on that flight to Luckler and leaving. And so he was part of it. He was with me that whole journey, you know, like he experienced every bit of it. And, you know, it was just like he said it would be, you know, it was even better, you know, it was all the things that he said. And uh, to be able to get home and before he passed away, you know, to be able to have those conversations, look at all the photos and, you know, the amazing thing was as well that, that, you know, there were photos that I showed him or even at the time when I was out there and I said, Dad, look at this, you know, and he could name every single peak. He knew exactly where I was. Wow. You know, he just he knew that landscape so well from all of the things that he read and watched. And, you know, he was just so intrinsically sort of at one with that landscape. It was it was quite amazing, really. Um, so it was a lovely thing, you know, that we could kind of share that together and be able to give him that and uh you know and show him bits and, and so there was lovely things that you know he'd, he'd seen a lot of things but he hadn't seen you know that there's a, a monument to Tenzing Norgay for instance and he was a he had huge respect for him and so to see that and he was like oh that's amazing you know and it, so there were lovely little things like that that he hadn't ever seen before so he did feel like you know I was bringing something new to the experience as well of the journey yeah mm. and you said there was is there something you want to read out that um yeah i can um, if you just give me a second yeah open it up on here um, <clears throat> so this was what i wrote obviously um i was out of signal a lot of the time so <clears throat> i think it was maybe a day or two later that it obviously went through and uh and everybody back at home sort of knew that i'd made it so uh and i wrote this just while i was on the mountain really it, these were words that i just felt at the time so I said, after nearly two weeks of continuous long trekking days in the Nepal Himalayas on the most challenging high altitude expedition I've ever done with extreme weather conditions, serious lack of oxygen and climbing to over five and a half thousand metres, I finally made it to Everest Base Camp. 
I'm now only meters away from the highest point on our planet, Mother Earth, and it's emotionally, beautifully breathtaking. I stand in utter awe and respect at the foot of this magnificent mountain, as I do only for the king of the mountain in my life, my beloved dad. I know you would have given anything in this world to look up Mount Everest with your own eyes, Pops, if only your health had allowed it. But know that you have been here with me every step of the way. These daughter's eyes you lovingly created are looking upon Sagamartha for you and recording every detail so I can come back with the real stories of this landscape and its beautiful people to describe it all to you. Thank you for inspiring me as a young girl with the magic of these mountains, the books, stories, documentaries, and giving me a lifelong passion to see it. You and Mama made me strong and equal with a warrior's heart. You are the quiet giant who taught me how to roar. I've done it for you, Pops, and it's everything you said it would be. I love you. Beautiful. <laughs> yeah. I remember after I'd posted it that quite a few people were sort of saying, oh, because I think when it came out in the UK, it was really early in the morning. And people were like, oh, I've just got into work and I'm crying my eyes out, you know. <laughs> it's, yeah. um, it wasn't meant for that, but it was a very heartfelt moment. You know, it was very, very important for me to say that and for my dad to know it and hear it. And wow. I'm so, so glad I got the opportunity to do it before he was gone three months later. Yeah. Well, listen, you, you you definitely made him very proud and you helped him fulfill the dream as well. So there's not much more you could do. Like, you know, it's, that's yeah. that's a wonderful story in itself. Yeah. I'm just so glad I did it, you know. And uh, yeah. and it's giving me the longing to do other things. You know, I'd love to go back there. There's so much more to the Himalayas, you know, than um, Everest too. You know, there's some amazing sort of other mountain ranges there, which I would love to go back and see um track around so who knows we'll see where the next bit takes us <laughs> <laughs> exactly mm. and i suppose I, i'm just wondering as well did you ever even get a chance to check out Kathmandu or were you gone again as soon as you got back oh yeah so when i got back yes we did have it <laughs> so we got back and uh i did spend a few days there actually before i was heading onwards to india um yeah that's quite an amazing and i think in some ways, the part of the group who actually got to experience Kathmandu before going to Everest were maybe a bit, it was maybe a bit better of an adjustment. Whereas for us, I think because we'd been to such an extraordinary place, into this amazing landscape, to then come back into the absolute madness that is Kathmandu. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I think I wasn't quite prepared for you know the frenzy of uh, yeah. <laughs> of uh, you know Kathmandu living. But what an amazing city! And again, you know, sort of fabulous people, and uh, obviously, you know, the sort of tourist highlights aren't they of the uh, the Monkey Temple? Mm-hmm. And there's a stupa there as well, isn't it? Which is one of the largest in the world, I think. And uh, oh, that yeah. was quite an yeah. extraordinary place. And we went out for dinner there as well. Actually, that's where we went on our last night with Tashi. Uh, when we got back, we all met and went for a traditional Nepalese meal. We all got to sort of, you know, say our farewells and things. And that was all rather special. But yeah, Kathmandu is an amazing, amazing city. I'd love to go back to Nepal, actually, spend a bit more time there and do a bit more traveling around. Well, you never know. I know. <laughs> Have you been there many times? So um, I've been there a few times now, uh, mm-hmm. like Everest Base Camp Trek. And then I was in the 
Annapurna area as well. Yeah, that's particularly an area I'd like to go to. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, it is a, an amazing place, but I, I do appreciate what you're saying about the madness of Kathmandu yeah. <laughs> In some ways, though, I was, like I say, I was going onwards to India and it kind of felt, oh, well, it's just like, you know, migrating me back in really to uh, the sort of, you know, that way of living. It, yeah. I mean, it's such a it's a feast for the senses in every way, you know, it's the sights, the smells, the sounds, you know, it's all going on and uh, it's very rich and vibrant. The only side that was slightly, you know, sad was obviously I was doing that trek in 2017 and 2015 had been the big earthquake in the That's right. And there was still a lot of devastation of that around actually. And uh, still a lot of, you know, the little shanty sort of towns, which had kind of cropped up more as temporary accommodation on the back of it, which was only meant to be very short term. And sadly, you know, there was still a lot of families still living in this sort of shanty town area. And, um, you know, they say that a lot of the aid money that came into the country was sort of, you know, corrupt and it had gone into the hands of agencies and governments and things like that. You know, it didn't quite reach the people it was meant to. So it's a great shame. So I'd like to think now, maybe five years on or so, things have got a bit better out there. I don't particularly know, but I really hope so really lovely people and you know they deserve the best of everything yeah i know at the time what some people were saying was if if you were sending aid money in you were better doing it through the red cross because they mm-hmm. they kind of have their own governance in there yeah. but other than that you just didn't know what was going to happen i know i know but interesting to see it after all of that i mean i know i think there's a netflix documentary that's come out on the back of all of that but i thought i'm definitely not going to watch it until after i spoke to you because i thought i don't want to influence any of my thoughts about that area or anything you know so I'll, I'll maybe watch it now and kind of just reflect on it again but uh, but it's been lovely revisiting this and revisiting the memories of it as well because uh, you know it was such a special time and yeah. uh, it's ingrained forever really you know that whole journey out there and uh, yeah it certainly gives you a longing to go back it's a beautiful yeah. part of the world yeah just just talking to you again and stirring a few memories here i can actually yeah. feel a little bit of a stirring myself yeah yeah maybe we'll have to organize a trip a mountain to glen sort of uh <laughs> yeah why stop at podcasting yeah. <laughs> listen maddie it's, it's been lovely having you on the, the podcast oh, this evening you. and i thank you for sharing that story and memories of your dad as well with us and who knows i have a feeling you may be back on again (laughs) maybe the stories of the convent that might be the next one (laughs) yeah 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 i'd be curious to hear about that one way or another (laughs) yeah maybe so (laughs) (laughs) okay folks so that's it from me for this episode of mountain the glen the podcast uh so i'm looking forward to talking to you again sometime soon so until then get out there and enjoy If you want to contact us, then you can do so by emailing us at mountaintoglen at gmail.com or by following Mountain to Glen, the podcast, on Facebook or Twitter. Thank you for listening. <laughs>